0: The election of Tony Blair cast the reflective nostalgics in the conservative party even further into the shadows. Blair was, in many ways, Thatcher's most important pupil, as Thatcher's biographer, Charles Moore, has made clear. He accepted the need for free markets. He adopted her partnership with the United States. He took the Labor Party to the center and kept it in power for 12 years. But he didn't have an ounce of any kind of nostalgia in his body. He didn't care about the specialness of England. Instead, Blair touted his modernity, embraced social change, encouraged Britain's economic integration with Europe and the world, and devolved power away from London by creating a Scottish Parliament and a Welsh Assembly, weakening England's voice in national politics. He agreed to a series of compromises that ended the long-standing conflict in Northern Ireland. Among other things, he succeeded because people in the North who felt themselves to be Irish could, thanks to the EU, have Irish passports. This blurring of sovereignty finally brought peace. For the nostalgic conservatives, Blair was a disaster. The triumphant mood of the 1980s gave way to real anger. Almost nobody was angrier than Simon Heffer, a brilliant historian and columnist, the deputy editor of The Spectator in the early 1990s, my direct predecessor in that job, and for a long time, a generous and loyal friend. Simon, whose love for English literature, English film, and English music is deep and genuine, took me to the only county cricket match I've ever attended and introduced me to the Ealing Comedies, a set of droll, literate English movies made in the 1940s and 1950s, some of which I watched at his house. I am the godmother of one of his children, just as Anya Bieletska is the godmother to one of mine. Much of the time we worked together, he was energetically, though still relatively cheerfully, attacking John Major, the EU, and the state of modern Britain. By the mid-2000s, when I was out of Britain and saw him only occasionally, several years of Labour Party leadership had made him apoplectic with rage. In 2006, a moment when it was hard to imagine how any conservative leader would ever be able to defeat the Labour Party ever again. He wrote, for example, that, thanks to a happy accident of birth, I was only nine and a half when the 1960s finished. I say happy because when I survey a country run by people 10 years older than me and who are still fixated by the dope-smoking, peace and love, hairy, hippie self-indulgence for which that dismal decade is famed, I thank God I escaped. I escaped. Our government of former student political activists remains utterly hamstrung by its own teenage prejudices and utterly boring about them. And the damage these people, in their lack of wisdom, inflict on society is still enormous and every bit as corrosive as the scourge of drugs, about which, until now, they have been so casual. Nor was the problem just drugs. All around him, he saw decline, rising political correctness, as well as a savage crime wave. Most of all, Heffer wrote, in the spirit of Langbein, the idea of merit has gone out of public life. Just like his German predecessor, he mourned the fact that the modern age no longer produced great leaders. There were no Churchills, no Thatchers, just the dope-smoking, peace-and-love, hairy, hippie self-indulgence of Tony Blair's Labour Party. Even when the Conservatives finally returned to office, his faith in modern leadership was not renewed. Soon after David Cameron's selection as Tory party leader, Heffer wrote that Cameron had never exhibited the slightest scintilla of principle at any time during his political career. He then repeated some version of that same sentence in many articles for the next seven years, right up to the moment of the Brexit referendum campaign. He supported Leave and called Cameron a liar a month before the vote. In the same article, he denounced the United Kingdom as a banana republic with worthless institutions. Heffer might have been uniquely vitriolic, but his underlying frustration was not unique at all. In that same era, Roger Scruton, a great conservative philosopher and another old friend, wrote a book called England, an Elegy, which was genuinely touching, beautifully written, and even more profoundly apocalyptic than Heffer's journalism. I met Scruton in the late 1980s, when he ran a charity that sent money to dissidents in Eastern Europe, using students and others as couriers. I became one of them. I knew him as a brave critic of communism at a time when that was not a fashionable thing to be. But England analogy has a different theme. Scruton began by explaining that the book would pay a personal tribute to the civilization that made me and which is now passing from the world. This was not an analysis or history. It was a funeral oration, an attempt to understand, from a philosophical perspective, what we are losing as our form of life decays. The elegantly composed chapters that followed paid tribute to what was, he said, a dead or dying England. English culture, English religion, English laws and English character. This was classic reflective nostalgia, and it finished with an extraordinary outpouring of cultural despair. The old England for which our parents fought has been reduced to isolated pockets between the motorways. The family farm, which maintained the small-scale and diversified production that was largely responsible for the shape and appearance of England, is now on the verge of extinction. The towns have lost their centers, which are boarded up and vandalized. And the cities have been all but obliterated by vast steel structures, which at night stand empty amid the wastes of illuminated concrete. The night sky is no longer visible, but everywhere blanketed with a sickly orange glow. And England is becoming a no-man's land, an elsewhere, managed by executives who visit the outposts only fleetingly staying in multinational hotels on the edges of floodlit wastelands. Scruton's love of the countryside, his lifelong advocacy of pre-modern architectural styles, and his faith in communities and local institutions could have led him to support the EU, whose policies explicitly seek to protect and promote European products and trademarks to preserve European architecture and agriculture, and with it, the European countryside sometimes in the teeth of market forces. He might have called for the EU to do more of these things, or to do them better. He might have come to see the EU, as so many Europeans do, as a bulwark against a world increasingly dominated by China, the United States, and global companies and banks with no interest in small European towns like the ones Scruton loved. But he, like Heffer and many others, came to the opposite conclusion. In due course, the EU became a kind of fixation for the nostalgic conservatives. Quite apart from any legitimate criticisms of EU policies or behaviors, and of course, there are many to be made, Europe became, for some of them, the embodiment of everything else that had gone wrong. The explanation for the toothlessness of the ruling class, the mediocrity of British culture, the ugliness of modern capitalism, and the general lack of national vigor the need to negotiate regulations had emasculated the British Parliament. The Polish plumbers and Spanish data analysts working in Britain were not fellow Europeans who shared a common culture, but immigrants threatening the nation's identity. As time passed, these views became ever more deeply felt. So much so that they slowly created new cleavages, altered relationships, changed minds. In 2012, My husband made a speech at a conference begging Britain not just to stay in the EU, but to lead it. The EU, he said, is an English-speaking power. The single market was a British idea. You could, if you only wished, lead Europe's defense policy. The speech was reprinted in the Times. Heffer wrote me an angry note about it. I later wrote him some angry notes, too, and for a long time we didn't speak to each other. To those in England and they were mostly in England—not Scotland, Wales, or Northern Ireland—who saw the world through this prism, the fight against Europe slowly took on the character of a valiant conflict with clear echoes from the past. Popular culture had already established the Second World War as the central event in modern history, and the Brexit campaign fit beautifully into this story. Two films about Churchill and one about Dunkirk were released in the lull between the referendum and Brexit. Andrew Roberts' Churchill biography became a bestseller in 2018. Johnson's own biography of Churchill had done very well a few years before. William Cash, a Tory MP who dedicated his career to pulling Britain out of Europe, compared Britain's EU membership to appeasement in a 2016 interview. In the same interview, he alluded to the memory of his father, who died on the Normandy beaches while explaining why he didn't want to live in a German-run Europe today. In the final column that he wrote before the referendum, Heffer described the EU, an organization that Britain had helped lead for two generations, as a foreign power overruling our courts and our elected government. He described the Leave campaigners as representatives of an upsurge of national consciousness that we have not known since the Second World War. Invoking the spirit of the Blitz, he declared, this is our moment of greatness. This turn toward restorative nostalgia led Heffer to reject the Conservative Party long before 2016. At some point in the 1990s, he told me that he would cast a vote for the UK Independence Party, the one-issue political movement that sought to extract Britain from the EU, though, of course, I don't know if he actually did. I remember being surprised because at that time I had never heard of UKIP, which was then a very fringe organization. UKIP functioned in practice as the party of English nationalism, its real interest being as much English resurgence as British independence. UKIP's founder and leader, Nigel Farage, was a wealthy city trader, a stockbroker's son who wore tweed jackets, had himself photographed drinking beer in pubs, and, hypocritically, Claimed to speak for the common man and against the elite. He did not share Scruton's Burkean elegiac nostalgia. He took Heffer's anger at the people who ran Britain and put it to political use. He was not an intellectual by any means, but he was someone who, like one of Benda's clerks, molded and shaped other people's ideas into a political project. The Tories at first condemned him. Then, as UKIP's star rose they sought to copy him. Sometimes there was a racial undertone to this kind of English nationalism. By definition, there can be no black Englishmen, even if there can be black Britons. But this was really not about the color of anyone's skin. The concept of Englishness also excluded the British-Irish of Belfast, after all, as well as the British Scots of Glasgow and everyone else in the United Kingdom's Gaelic fringe. Its adherents even came to believe that if leaving the EU broke up the United Kingdom, and they always knew it might, then so be it. John O'Sullivan, a former speechwriter for Margaret Thatcher, was willing to pay that price too. Oh, Scotland will go, O'Sullivan told me years ago, and we will carry on. For some, the potential for constitutional and political chaos was not just a regrettable side effect. It was part of the Brexit appeal. Dressed in hoodies and dark sunglasses, Dominic Cummings affected a completely different style from the tweed-encased, nostalgic conservatives with their brogues and barber jackets. As far as I know, he has never expressed any longing for the past at all. But sociologically, Cummings, one of the chief spin doctors of the Leave campaign and then Johnson's primary advisor, was closely related to the nostalgic conservatives. He was the husband of a spectator editor the son-in-law of a baronet, the nephew of a famous judge with an Oxford Humanities degree. More importantly, he shared a part of their sensibility, especially their belief that something essential about England was dead and gone. In the run-up to the Brexit campaign and in the months afterward, Cummings wrote a series of blog posts bristling with tech speak and military jargon that poured scorn on the British Parliament, British politicians, and the British Civil Service using very different language from Heffer, but deploying exactly the same level of fury. He wrote of the "...systemic dysfunction of our institutions and the influence of grotesque incompetence," and described British policymaking as "...the blind leading the blind." Although he would never have called himself one, Cummings saw Europe in the same terms as the other restorative nostalgics. In one of his online essays, posted in 2019, Before Boris Johnson made him chief special advisor, Cummings excoriated the EU for holding Britain back. The old institutions like the UN and EU, built on early 20th century assumptions about the performance of centralized bureaucracies, are incapable of solving global coordination problems. His conclusion, reinvent everything, from schools to the civil service to the parliament itself. But whether their cultural despair was angry or elegiac, whether their nostalgia was restorative or reflective, whether they were clerks like Cummings, or several steps removed from politics like Scruton, the nostalgic conservatives laid the groundwork for a Brexit campaign that felt, to those who supported it, like the last chance to save the country, whatever it took, whatever price had to be paid. Both the establishment conservative vote-leave campaign led by Johnson and his Tory colleague Michael Gove, as well as UKIP's own campaign led by Nigel Farage, told lies. If we left the EU, Johnson claimed, there would be an extra £350 million a week, an imaginary number, for the National Health Service. If we stayed in the EU, we would be forced to accept Turkey as a member, which was also untrue. Farage appeared in front of a poster showing huge crowds of Syrians trekking toward Europe, even though there was no reason why any of them would end up in the United Kingdom, which is not part of the Schengen area, Europe's border-free zone. In an interview, Cummings later compared this campaign to Soviet propaganda. But his own campaign also relied on stoking immigration fears and false promises about welfare spending, indeed, deliberately linking the two. Among other things, it made a video that claimed, Turkey is joining the EU, our schools and hospitals already can't cope. Though it bore no relation to reality, it was viewed 515,000 times. Once upon a time, the reshaping of ideas into political projects was a matter of writing pamphlets. The Brexit campaign was the end of that idea and the onset of something new. The Vote Leave campaign cheated, breaking electoral laws in order to spend more money on targeted advertising on Facebook. Animal lovers were shown photographs of Spanish bullfighters. Tea drinkers were shown a grasping hand marked with an EU flag, reaching for a British teacup, alongside an angry slogan, The European Union wants to kill our cuppa. The Vote Leave campaign used the data stolen by the company Cambridge Analytica to assist with that targeting. All of the Brexit campaigns benefited from Russian trolling operations, though these mostly just echoed what Vote Leave was doing anyway. The atmosphere of the campaign was uglier than any in modern British history. At its height, Joe Cox, a female member of parliament, was murdered by a man who had become convinced that Brexit meant liberation and remain meant that England would be destroyed by hordes of brown foreigners. Just like the murderer of Pavel Adamovich, the mayor of Gdansk, he had been radicalized by the angry rhetoric all around him. Both then and later, the activists who were bent on restoration of English greatness kept their focus on the goal of leaving. Knowing some of them, and knowing how deeply they care about England, how convinced they are that their civilization is at risk, I understood their frame of mind, even if I didn't agree with it. They believe that the British political system is too corrupt to reform itself. The country has been so transformed as to be unrecognizable. The very essence of the nation is disappearing. But if all that is true, then only a profound revolution, even a revolution that might alter the very nature of the state, its borders, its traditions, maybe even its democratic institutions, can stop the rot. If Brexit could be that revolution, then anything that led to Brexit, from false spending claims to data manipulation to attacks on the judiciary, to Russian money, was acceptable. That prospect of extreme change continued to inspire and motivate them, even when it ran into trouble. Democracy, in the writings and speeches of some of the Brexiteers, was the paramount reason for Brexit. Back in 2010, Heffer wrote that Europe has advanced largely by being anti democratic, that Europe had been Sovietized and that Britain needed to escape for the sake of its democracy. Tory MP Michael Gove told an audience in 2016 that our membership of the EU stops us being able to choose who makes critical decisions which affect all our lives. He hoped, by contrast, that a victory for Brexit would lead to the democratic liberation of a whole continent. At no point did the Brexiteers seek to achieve their goal without a referendum vote. But however much they supported democracy, in theory, quite a few Brexiteers, especially the ones who worked for the tabloid press, were disgusted by the actual democratic institutions of the United Kingdom in practice. When three British judges ruled in November 2016 that the British Parliament would have to give its consent before the government could formally withdraw from the EU, the Daily Mail, a newspaper run by Brexiteers, ran an extraordinary front page pictures of the three judges in their wigs and robes and the headline, Enemies of the People. The decision had nothing to do with Brexit. On the contrary, it upheld the sovereignty of Parliament. Nevertheless, the three judges, including the Lord Chief Justice and the Master of the Rolls, to give them their full titles, were excoriated in the accompanying article. Once, these were the sort of establishment figures respected by Burkean conservatives, Now they were outsiders, aliens, out-of-touch elites, seeking to thwart the real Britons. One of them was described sneeringly as an openly gay ex-Olympic fencer. And the judiciary was not the only venerable British institution under assault. Another Daily Mail front-page story assaulted the House of Lords under the headline, Crush the Saboteurs. As the negotiations with the EU dragged on, the Brexiteers' scorn for British institutions grew more intense. Inevitably, the process of extracting Britain from 40 years of treaties proved far more difficult than the simplistic election slogans had promised. As it turned out, very few of the nostalgic conservatives really understood Europe or European politics, and their predictions about what would happen next were all wrong. Heffer wrote a column arguing that Brexit would lead to a rash of copycat referenda in other European countries. In fact, it led to growing support for the EU. One Tory member of the House of Lords told me just after the vote that he had personally spoken with senior German manufacturers and had been assured that any arrangements made would be favorable to Britain. In fact, the senior German manufacturers started talking about divesting from Britain. During the referendum campaign, nobody had thought at all about Northern Ireland or the need to build a new British-Irish customs border if Britain were leaving the single market. As soon as negotiations began, these immediately emerged as the central issues. The realization that they had underestimated the costs and overestimated the ease with which Britain could be extracted from Europe led a few Brexiteers to lapse into silence. One journalist told me privately she had changed her mind about Brexit, though I noticed that the tone of her public writings did not change. But others were drawn even more sharply to the idea of chaos. A no-deal Brexit, one that meant Britain would crash out of all of its treaties with Europe, leading to an automatic rise in tariffs and legal uncertainty for millions of people, was no longer an unfortunate outcome to be avoided if at all possible. They wanted disruption. They wanted impact. They wanted real change. This, finally, was the moment when it might be possible to convert their nostalgia for a better past into a better future. There were different versions of this desire for chaos. A sudden drop in economic activity would be good for the nation's soul, some came to believe. Everyone would buck up, tighten their belts, and work harder. The British are among the worst idlers in the world, a group of pro-Brexit MPs wrote of their countrymen. They needed a shock, a period of hardship, a challenge. This would return Britain, or at least England, to its essence, reveal the country's plucky character. It would force the slothful, decadent modern state to regain, in Johnson's words, the dynamism of those bearded Victorians. On the other side of the political spectrum, a different sort of disaster fantasy held sway. The labor leader, Jeremy Corbyn, hailed from a Marxist tradition that had historically welcomed catastrophe because catastrophe can lead to radical change. Though they never said so in public, Tom Watson, then the deputy leader of the Labor Party, privately told journalist Nick Cohen that a part of the labor leadership absolutely believe that if Brexit brings chaos, the voters will turn to the radical left. A subset of the British intellectual left also seemed to hope that, at the very least, Brexit would jolt the country out of its capitalist economic system. The left wing Jacobin magazine published an article, for example, arguing that Brexit offers a once in a lifetime opportunity to show that a radical break with neoliberalism and with the institutions that support it is possible. Still others hoped for a deep crisis, but with a different outcome, that the chaos would lead to a bonfire of regulations, an abandonment of the welfare state, new opportunities for hedge funds and investors. Britain could become Europe's offshore tax haven, Singapore on Thames, as the Brexit party MEP Robert Rowland put it to me. Oligarchs would be happy. Everyone else would simply have to adjust. Everything would be better. These were not fringe views, and they were not considered crazy. All these fantasies were expressed by establishment figures. At different times, the prime minister, the leader of the opposition, wealthy financiers. Nobody had voted for that kind of disruption, of course. It was never discussed during the referendum campaign. The majority of parliament was against it. The majority of the country was against it. But gradually it became, for many Brexiteers, the real goal. And if the institutions of the British state stood in the way, then the institutions would suffer. I don't think it's coincidental that at about this time, a few British conservatives, upstanding members of the Tory party, ex-Thatcherites, ex-Cold Warriors, also became enamored of undemocratic politics in other places. Theresa May's government had dropped the old idea that Britain should stand up for democracy around the world with amazing speed. Johnson during his brief and disastrous tenure as foreign secretary, made no efforts in that direction at all. Britain's only foreign policy interest after 2016 was Brexit. And so, for example, instead of using its considerable influence in Warsaw to persuade Poland's Law and Justice Party not to pack its courts, the two parties were part of the same caucus in the European Parliament, the Tory party leapt to defend it. For a few people, this required quite a shift in values. The Tory MEP, Daniel Hannan had, for example, been eloquent in his denunciation of communist lies in the past. Like me, Hannan had even helped Scruton send money to Eastern European dissidents. But he ignored the same kinds of lies when they came from his law and justice colleagues in the European Parliament. I don't want to get into domestic Polish politics, he told me, when I asked him about it in January 2020, during his final week in the Strasbourg Parliament Building. Some British parliamentarians in Europe went even farther. In 2018, MEPs from both the Conservative Party and UKIP voted to protect Orban from being censured by the EU for illegally undermining the independence of his country's judiciary. Why would politicians from a country dedicated to the rule of law do this? In the words of a former UKIP member of the European Parliament, they wanted to assert the right of a democratic nation to defy Brussels' interference. At about the same time, the Spectator magazine, My Old Employer, cheerfully agreed to hold an evening event sponsored by the Sazadweg Foundation, an institution that loyally promotes the interests of Fidesz, the Hungarian ruling party. The foundation once shut down its own magazine on the grounds that it had published an article critical of the government, The task of this publication will be to support the government's direction," the editor stated. The topic of the spectator Sazadveg event was not press freedom but migrant policy, the subject the Hungarian leadership uses to appeal to anti-immigrant conservatives in Western Europe, even though Hungary itself is not a destination for mass migration and never has been. The event was followed by what was, by all accounts, a jolly drunken evening at the Hungarian embassy at which the ambassador welcomed the British writers and broadcasters around the table as fellow conservatives, all fighting the same cause. When I asked The Spectator's editor, Fraser Nelson, about the event, he vehemently denied feeling a shred of sympathy for Hungarian authoritarianism. Though he didn't renounce the association, or presumably the sponsorship fee, he did let me write an article arguing that some Brexiteers were providing intellectual cover for a profoundly corrupt political party one which will never voluntarily leave the EU because its leaders have invented too many clever ways to hijack EU funds on behalf of their friends. This infuriated the Hungarian ambassador to London, who cornered me at a book party where he had been invited by another one of my friends to accuse me of writing something that would make it more difficult to do his job. This accusation was not untrue. The Hungarians also drew in some people whose anger or disappointment in their own country has led them more actively to seek alternatives elsewhere. One of them was John O'Sullivan, the same John O'Sullivan who was so cavalier about Scotland leaving the United Kingdom. One of Mrs. Thatcher's speechwriters, her ghostwriter, a brilliant stylist, and in the 1980s and 1990s, the editor of one of the most important American conservative journals, the National Review. In that capacity, he once hired my husband as a roving correspondent. He came to our wedding. He had a well-deserved reputation as a bon vivant, a mutual friend remembers visiting his apartment and noting that he had nothing in his refrigerator except a bottle of champagne. And he was a great talker as well as an excellent writer. But toward the end of his genuinely distinguished career, O'Sullivan, then in his 70s, found his way to Budapest. There he began working for the Danube Institute, a think tank created and funded via another foundation by the Hungarian government. He described it to me as conservative in culture, classically liberal in economics, and Atlanticist in foreign policy. But the Danube Institute exists in practice to make the Hungarian government presentable to the outside world. It has no impact inside the country. Hungarian friends describe its presence in Budapest as marginal. As a rule, Hungarians don't read its admittedly sparse English language publications, and its events are unremarkable and mostly go unremarked. But O'Sullivan has an office and a Budapest apartment. He has the means to invite his many friends and contacts, all conservative writers and thinkers, to visit him in one of Europe's greatest and most beautiful cities. I have no doubt that when they get there, O'Sullivan is the jovial and witty host that he always was. O'Sullivan has defended Orban many times, including in an introduction to a short book about the Hungarian prime minister. That defense goes more or less like this. Everything you've heard about Hungary is wrong. There's plenty of freedom. Other Europeans criticize Hungary not because of corruption or because of the government's carefully cultivated xenophobia, but because they dislike Orban's Christian values. This last point appeals strongly to American conservative writers like Christopher Caldwell, who, following O'Sullivan's invitation to Budapest, produced a long article in the Claremont Review lauding Orban's attack on neutral social structures and a level playing field, a euphemism for independent courts and the rule of law. Caldwell also praised the mystical, organic community that he believes Orban has created instead. Though only a foreigner would call Orban's closed, corrupt, one-party state, a world in which the prime minister's friends, family, and cousins get rich, people are promoted and demoted depending on their party loyalty, and everyone else is left out, an organic community, and only an ideologue could believe that Hungary's European neighbors are annoyed by Orban's Christianity. In reality, they are annoyed by the cultivated xenophobia of the anti-Soros and anti-European campaigns. They are annoyed by the legal manipulations that have given the Hungarian prime minister nearly complete control of the press and the electoral process, and they are annoyed by his corruption and use of EU money to fund cronies. In the spring of 2020, they were outraged when Orban used the coronavirus as an excuse to give his government near dictatorial powers, including the power to arrest journalists who criticized the government's response to the pandemic. The hypocrisy is infuriating, too. In fact, plenty of non Europeans and non Christians, Syrians, Malaysians, Vietnamese, do emigrate to Hungary. They just have to pay. In 2013, when O'Sullivan first arrived there, the Danube Institute was an eccentric place for someone as distinguished as him to end up. But after the Hungarian government had created a political system in which no opposition party could possibly win, after the state audit office had stripped opposition parties of their campaign funding, after a state holding company had taken control of most of the Hungarian media, after the Hungarian government had forced the Central European University to leave the country, After Orban's family and friends had enriched themselves on state contracts, after the ruling party had used racism and covert anti-Semitism in its election campaign, Orban was fighting an unnamed enemy who is crafty and international and speculates with money. After Orban had welcomed a Russian bank with espionage links, after he had undermined U.S. policy in Ukraine, after all that, O'Sullivan's position at the Danube Institute became strange and the line he sold to visiting friends even more so. By then, the only conceivable reason for the Hungarian government to fund the Danube Institute was to camouflage the true nature of a Hungarian government that was not at all conservative in the old Anglo-Saxon sense, not classically liberal in economics, and not particularly Atlanticist either. It took me a while to get in touch with O'Sullivan since he moves around a lot. By the time we managed to speak over the phone in the autumn of 2019, he was on a cruise ship, and it was very late his time. We had an unpleasant conversation, though not as unpleasant as the one I'd had with Maria Schmidt. He didn't demand to make his own recording, and he didn't publish an inaccurate version afterward. But he did respond to every question with some version of whataboutism, a rhetorical technique once made famous by Soviet officials in which questions are answered by accusing the questioner of hypocrisy. To my queries about the Hungarian media, 90% owned and operated by the government or by ruling party-linked companies. He answered that most U.S. media is more favorable to the Democratic Party, so the situation is similar. When I asked about the Hungarian government's friendship with Russia, he asked whether Germany was really committed to the United States and NATO. When I asked whether he felt comfortable working for an institution funded by the Hungarian government, he said that, I am absolutely certain that the government in Hungary use policies that I personally don't agree with. But, on the other hand, there are lots of government policies in different countries that I don't like. When I asked about the Hungarian businessmen threatened by the ruling party, he said that they should complain about it more. He agreed that it was interesting and notable that once upon a time, back in the 1980s, he, Orban, and I had all been on the same side and that now we are not. But he thought that was because I had changed, not him. I was now part of a liberal, judicial, bureaucratic, international elite that was opposed to democratically elected parliaments. He didn't really explain how you can even have a democratically elected parliament in a state like Hungary, where the government can and does cheat with impunity, where opposition parties can be randomly fined or punished, where part of the judiciary is politicized, and where the bulk of the media is manipulated by the ruling party. His use of the word elite was also curious. In Hungary, the only elite, and it's an overwhelmingly powerful, illiberal, judicial, bureaucratic elite, is the new one that thrives inside Fidesz. It was also curiously unreflective. Once upon a time, O'Sullivan would have been proud to call himself a member of a transatlantic international elite, one that attended parties with Rupert Murdoch and went to expensive dinners with Conrad Black. But it was late wherever his cruise ship was. He was annoyed, and so was I. I don't believe Boris Johnson started out thinking of himself as a member of a new elite, let alone as a revolutionary. He was a certified member of the old elite, after all. And whatever his deputies and advisors believe, he didn't start out being interested in undermining the state or redefining Britain or England either. He was just trying to win, to be admired. He wanted to go on telling amusing stories and to gain power. But in the new political world created by Brexit, winning required unprecedented steps. The Constitution had to be pushed to the limit. The Tory party had to be cleansed of doubters. The rules had to be changed. In the autumn of 2019, he began to change them. In September 2019, on the advice of Cummings, he took the extraordinary decision to prorogue Parliament, to suspend it unconventionally and unconstitutionally. He also expelled from the party a group of liberal Tories who were trying to block a no-deal Brexit, which was equally unprecedented. Among them were two former chancellors of the Exchequer and Churchill's grandson. Some of them, including Dominic Grieve, a former attorney general and one of the last principled pro-European Tories, were actively smeared by the party afterward. An anonymous Downing Street source, presumably Cummings, Told newspapers that Grieve and others were under investigation for foreign collusion, language that suggested treason. Johnson refused to deny this absurd story, instead, telling a news program, There is a legitimate question to be asked. Grieve received death threats in the days that followed. Boris also called parliamentary objections to a no deal Brexit a form of surrender to the enemy, a comment he tried to pass off as a joke. Not everyone laughed. On the contrary, some of the people around him were deadly serious. The Brexiteers were furious at Parliament, whose majority fought back with every legal tactic, every parliamentary rule it could muster, in order to stop the no-deal Brexit that the majority of Britons opposed. Eventually, they agreed to a deal that many had called unacceptable only months before, one that allowed a customs barrier to be placed between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. The no-deal scenario had been blocked, but Brexiteers were determined to ensure that nothing could stop them again. The Tory Party's manifesto, written in advance of their December 2019 election campaign, contained a hint of the revenge some hoped would be inflicted on those who had used the checks and balances of the Constitution so effectively. After Brexit, we also need to look at the broader aspects of our Constitution. The relationship between the government, Parliament, and the courts. The functioning of the royal prerogative the role of the House of Lords, and access to justice for ordinary people. In the weeks after the election, there were some hints of what might be coming. There were, as in Poland, noises made about undermining public media, perhaps by altering the funding of the BBC. There was, as in Hungary, talk of curtailing or limiting the courts. There was talk of a purge of civil servants, too. Cummings advertised that he wanted to hire misfits and weirdos, to help him make the large changes in policy and in the structure of decision-making that would now be necessary. Throughout the divisive referendum campaign and two angry elections, the intellectuals and spin doctors who had thrown their energies behind Brexit had invoked revolution and destruction, the kind of language that hadn't been part of British politics in many years. After Johnson won a commanding majority, a few of them finally were in a position to act on it they were also suddenly faced with the dilemma laid out by the American statesman Dean Acheson back in 1962. Great Britain has lost an empire, but not yet found a role. In subsequent decades, Britain had found a role as one of the most powerful and effective leaders of Europe, as the most important link between Europe and America, as a champion, especially inside Europe, of democracy and the rule of law. Now, in a world dramatically reshaped by a pandemic, Britain's leaders are starting from scratch. Britain's place in the world, its role in the world, even its self-definition, who are the British, what kind of nation is Britain, is up for grabs once again. In the new landscape created by the double medical and economic crises of 2020 and by Johnson's own dangerous brush with the coronavirus, something very different may emerge.